Hey there, welcome to the Obaya Podcast. This is Sofia Sanchez, your host. I am a teenager who is totally crazy about synthetic biology, cellular agriculture, and biotech in general. Actually, in this podcast, I interview and have conversations with people around the world who I consider to be leaders in the biotech industry, like founders or researchers, anyone who's doing interesting work in the biotech space, really. So in this episode, I was thrilled to talk with Zimri Tihinshaw. He is the founder and CEO of Bucha Bio. And Bucha Bio is a biotech startup growing alternative materials using bacterial nanocellulose, as well as plant-based proteins. They've gone through the IndieBio program and... I'm biased here. IndieBio is one of the coolest accelerators in the world. Actually, biotech as a startup accelerators in the world. And they've also raised some $100,000 to do what I think most biotech startups are doing right now, which is scaling up. And in my opinion, well, Zimri is a very is a founder with a very interesting background. He lived part of his life in Japan where he became interested in fashion. And actually, even as a 22-year-old, sorry Zimri for highlighting this again, I promise it's just with a positive connotation, um, he, he has started a couple of startups before. So in this episode, we not only talk about Bucha Bio, we not only talk about Zimri as a founder either, but also about the advice that he can give to other seriously young biotech startup founders. And Zimri does that through a series of stories that I really enjoy listening to personally. So I hope you enjoy this episode, that you learn something new, and remember, it's time to grow. To the podcast, to Simri, thank you for being here. And uh, yeah, I guess that I, I'm first very curious to know about your time in Japan. I know that uh, that's where sort of your interest in passion, in, sorry, passion for fashion started. So yeah, tell us more about that. Yeah, so, so I grew up in a military family. My mother is in the military. And we relocated every, you know, every three years, so very typical. And I ended up in Okinawa, Japan, and I was going to the military high school there. And it was pretty boring. <laughs> I was pretty bored at military high school. So I dropped out, and I instead went to a Japanese high school, first in Naha, um, which is the southernmost city in Okinawa, and then later also in, in Chatan uh, High School, which is which was the middle of the island. And definitely my love of fashion started in Japan. And specifically, I, you know, Chatan was an okay school, it was a good school. They, they very kindly let me in and let me, me, me be there for the year and, and, and speak Japanese every day. Um, but also had a reputation for being a little bit of, um, you know, had a lot of what they call in Japanese Yankee, which in Japanese means kind of bad boys or, or bad kids. Mm-hmm. And so I, I definitely was interested in, in the style that some of them were wearing. Um, and in Okinawa, I, I sort of was friends with some Japanese street gang members. <laughs> that sounds really intimidating. But in Japan, you have these kind of social outcasts or these people who didn't fit in with the, the standard society and so they, they join these motorcycle gangs and they wear these amazing, usually ornate and colorful 
um, motorcycle jackets that are very unique to to, to Japan. And um, that was sort of something that I, I was inspired by. And, and then I went to college in Tokyo at Temple University in, in, in Tokyo, Japan, and learned more about you know how how you present yourself to the world and how important fashion is to to, to how you look and appear and, and the impression that it gives people. And uh, when I went back to the United States and realized that entrepreneurship was a path, I, I sort of wanted to take all my experiences from Japan and, and become a fashion designer. And and I wanted to design motorcycle jackets made from, um, you know, inspired by these 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 motorcycle uh, gang jackets from 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 my time in Japan, um, and 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 sort of started there. So so that's kind of maybe a good way to to end up there. Does that answer your question about Japan? Yeah, definitely. I guess that, you know, me myself being in Mexico and I guess uh, sometimes interacting with people from around the world, it's just very interesting to know how like those uh, different cultures maybe shaped certain like interests people have. Yeah. And uh, in your case, that's, that's an interesting story about the bad boys and <laughs> then becoming interested in fashion. And, uh, you know, I, I was also reading that Bucha is actually like... Um, not your first, at least, entrepreneurial journey, so there were some before. Um, and I, I wonder what those previous experiences taught you that you are applying now to Bucha Bio. Well, you, you've clearly done your research. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't often get people asking me questions about my other entrepreneurial ventures. Um, people don't know about them. How did you find out about them? Well, you know, I was just uh, reading some articles from uh, that are featured in the Bucha Bio website, and uh, one of them mentioned like, "Oh, this is actually uh, Simri's seventh entrepreneurial journey." And I was like, "Whoa, he's actually very young!" Like, wow. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a, it's a. I'm surprised that you caught that little tidbit. Um, it's absolutely true. Um, I have. So, so you know, another part of the Tokyo story. So basically what I just gave you is the very filtered down, very like palatable origin story for Bucha Bio, uh, where the leather jackets would then become an inspiration to find a material that wasn't leather, wasn't animal-based, wasn't plastic-based, and then that became the genesis of the company. But why don't we go back and I'll give you probably a slightly more honest version of, of that story, which is that... I, and, and one that doesn't resonate as much with people. Um, and and the, the story of, you know, finding inspiration to, to do the, the the leather jackets and the motorcycle gang and become a designer is, is very much true. Um, but there were, there were things in between, you know, that, that happening. There, there was content and in between those, those two points. And it started when I was living in Tokyo. Um, and I realized after, you know, watching the Japanese salaryman lifestyle, and, and that's, I, I thought that I was going to be in Japan for, for my entire life. Yeah. And I was speaking Japanese very fluently at the time in Tokyo, um, you know, and, and I, I was very ingrained in the culture. It was very important to me. And I remember being on the subway and just seeing the salaryman lifestyle. If you didn't know, Tokyo salaryman lifestyle is very much you, you work all day for a large corporation, oftentimes one that overworks you significantly. Um, so you're working you know, a 12-hour day uh, and then you drink all night. 
um, and then you do the same thing every the next day. And so that's a very typical lifestyle for a, a business person in Tokyo. And it, I realized that that really wasn't the interesting to me, that I didn't want to work for um, a big company and doing things like that every day. It just wasn't my, my lifestyle. So when I made the decision to go back to the United States and look for other opportunities, I came to Temple University and realized that in the United States and at Temple University specifically, that really emphasizes entrepreneurship. But this was an actual path someone could take that was a, a very alternative path, a, a, something that wasn't so mainstream um, and, and, and provided someone the opportunity to pursue an idea, a dream and create something from nothing. And that all was very exciting for me. So the, the real passion for me was, 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 yes, I wanted to become an entrepreneur, um, which was not my first idea. My very first idea uh, was to create a like the entire tea making process in a single cylinder. So I wanted to take what I had learned in Japan, what I had learned in, and especially traveling to China and realizing how important tea was and the ceremony of tea. And I thought perhaps you could take that experience of a very luxurious premium tea and you could put it into something that you could carry with you all the time. And so you could, anywhere you were, even when you were traveling, you could have um, very, very premium experience for, for your tea drinking. Not, not like going by a bottle of Lipton, but really the brewing process happening anywhere uh, with you. Now, I'm, and you know, at Temple University, I, I, you know, I, I quickly had hired or found a team. You know, I, I found an engineer who could design it. I had found a graphic designer who could help with graphics. I had, you know, found a logo and a brand and, and very quickly, you know, started practicing how to build a team, how to build a brand, how to build a logo, how to assemble a vision, how to pitch it. Um, the critical thing for that company was that what happens when you take a pressurized bottle of hot liquid up in altitude? Do you know? I have no idea. Uh, the, the real answer is that it explodes. Whoa. Yeah. Why? So my first idea I had accidentally very very not on purpose i had created a pipe bomb which is not great <laughs> no that no. i mean but so, how did you notice that i i was very lucky that before when i had you know i had been calling manufacturers in china and saying hey can we get this built and getting yeah yeah sure we can get this built um back and thank god one of my engineers uh the engineers i was working with a student at temple university thank god she 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 found that flaw and, and pointed out that hey uh, you know this is going to be taken on planes and gonna be pressurized and gonna be hot and boiling liquid and that's gonna get a pressure as you move up this could become a problem um so so was really glad that I had people there who could very quickly make sure that that idea did not come to fruition. All right. So, so the idea was also that it remained hot during the whole journey. And that's why, like, there was also this explosion thing. It wasn't so much that it would remain hot, but what, what would happen if you, if you started boiling it at a low altitude, it's under pressure because mm -hmm. it was under pressure then it would be you know spewing stuff aside yeah so it's under pressure it's in a contained vessel in this tube 
And the question was, what would happen as if you started boiling it at a low altitude and finished boiling it at a high altitude? Mm. That pressure differential that it would create yeah. could explode the, the mechanism glass, wow. even if it's tempered. Um, it was a very beautiful design. I've always been very the aesthetics of what we create and what I create and what, what the company creates and what we put out in the world. Um, and so it was a very intricate design. It had traditional Japanese and, and some Chinese motifs, some dragons, some weaves, some, some beautiful characters and sort of a glowing mechanism inside that would, would show you the process. And then, um, you know, it was very also sort of steampunk where you'd have this infusion of, of tea that would kind of spray into the main chamber and you could actually see all these things happening. So it was a beautiful idea. Um, and there was possibly a market for it, probably in, you know, the West Coast with some, some, some you know, probably older or mothers or, or older um, parents, uh, either male or female, who, who, you know, were interested in, in, in more luxurious or more kind of in like holistic sustainability, holistic uh, experiences. So I think there was a market, it wasn't big. Um, uh, and I'm glad to have moved past that that idea, but it was a fun place to start. <laughs> Definitely, I, I guess that then those, uh, the main learnings you took from there were both in the process of product design, but also in like thinking, will this like feasibility itself in the, case of yeah. yeah not only making the product beautiful but also well functional and uh yeah that, that's definitely an interesting story and uh i'm glad that you guys realized it before before something else happened <laughs> and um yeah, yeah. you know i also read you know that you have gone through a lot of iterations on the actual bucha leather now you are like in in this next Base of like you have a better product with better quality, but also you've partnered with like uh, another company to make it more colorful. I think that the differentiator, correct me if I'm wrong, is like combining bacterial cellulose with some plant-based materials. Is that right? And so how, how was the story of finding out about that? Like uh, finding out that you could use plant-based materials? Sure. Um, uh, I'll make a quick correction to the name of, of what we're doing. It's it's not Bucha Leather. Uh, that was the the previous name of the company. Okay. Um, but realize that that scope is is very narrow, and so when we shifted the name to Bucha Bio, the goal has been to, you know, create something that is bigger than just one product. That is bigger than just. Um, a leather replacement. And so we certainly are working on a, a very close analog to, to leather leather replacement. Uh, the, the luxury biotextile, the brand behind that is Shorai, oh. uh, which is the name of that textile. And that's the Japanese word inspired by the Japanese word for future. Nice. Yeah. Um, but going back to the, the, the previous question, the, the genesis of how you discover uh, that this was a possibility. So we'll go back to the, the story of, of finding these, these, these leather jackets or thinking about the leather jackets because it, it starts there, which was, I knew I wanted to create some jackets, but I didn't know what material to use. And I'm going on YouTube and finding a science group that was experimenting with kombucha, uh, SCOBY. And they had created this gelatinous layer that was sort of sitting on top and 
it dried it and they added some some waxes and some oils and, and said, oh, this is kind of interesting, it kind of looks like leather. And I thought, ooh, that, that's not just an experiment, you know, that, that could be a real industry, but I want to make my jackets out of this material, but no one was producing it. And so I thought instead, well, hey, this is an interesting thing. What if we created the, 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 uh, this material at a serious scale and really take that technology and the science further than it has been done in the past? And so, you know, with the knowledge of all of my previous uh, ventures and experiences that I had learned from these past companies that I had attempted to start, you know, I, I did a very methodical approach, a very like a very classically trained entrepreneurial approach, which is I went to the business, I went to the Charles Library, I went to the business librarian, I looked at the market, I looked at who was funding these kinds of companies uh, that were creating plant-based materials. Uh, I saw a path to fundraising, a path to investability. I went and did a you know a, a very thorough patent search and realized that there was no one putting technology claims in this space for everything was happening in, in biomedical applications of bacterial nanocellulose and and those kinds of fil films and so I realized that the the potential to, to patent and own technology in the space was quite quite good and 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 quite ambitious and um, I think finally. I had, you know, thought about the market uh, for these materials and, and as someone who's been plant-based for, for a very long time now, um, I knew that values were changing, um, that perceptions were changing, that, that consumers really care today about buying products that align with their personal values, um, both for the environment and just their personal ethics generally. And so I knew there was a market for these things and that that was an expanding market um, as the timing was good. And so I did all of those kind of checks. And once they all passed, I decided to start up and started creating materials out of my Temple University dorm room um, under my roommate's bed, which I <laughs> hated. Um, sorry, Josh, if you're listening to this. Um, and the, the technology has developed quite a ways since that you know, original, original genesis. Uh, we used to be, you know, using the kombucha scoby really as the substrate, as the actual material that we'd kind of coat and change the color of through dyeing. Um, and that's no longer the case. Uh, you know, we're serious about scaling. We're serious about creating technologies that are have more broad applications than just textiles. And so, the, the vision really has, has expanded and, and we're now using bacteria nanocellulose as more of a reagent to combine with, uh, you know, a, a very now vast library of biopolymers and additives and, and plant-based chemistries that enable us to create, you know, many different kinds of products, not just Shorai. So that's kind of the, the shift. Gotcha. And, you know, going a little bit back to when you mentioned uh, you were in this other startup and you were like collaborating with engineers, designers and so on. Uh, yeah. Now, I suppose that's obviously the, the case as well for, for the Bucha Bio startup. And uh, given your, your background in like uh, finance and liberal arts and so on, um, what advice or what have you learned about collaborating with scientists and so on to, to innovate in the space? Wow, I'm continually impressed by <laughs> how much of my background you've 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 pulled out here. Um, 
Yeah, I think the key thing is is that you you know you, you can't do it alone. Um, that entrepreneurship and startup takes a cross discipline team, and I think that a background in liberal arts, um, you know, was really interesting to have because it exposed me as as more of a business person, as more of an economist, and a minor in business from, from the Fox School of Business. You know, being a liberal arts major um, really exposed me to different kinds of people than I wouldn't typically have been exposed to. So, you know, I met artists, I met writers, I met, you know, and 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 and, and entrepreneurship from Taylor University also connected me with the Tyler School of Art and you know other folks at Fox Business School and lots of different kinds of folks. And and I think that in any startup, if you think you can do it alone, that's laughable. Uh, you need to have a, a team that has complementary skills. I mean, that's very basic. Um, and I think that finding people who balance you out, um, both in technical ability. So, you know, now we have, we just hired, you know, our second PhD. Um, and, and, and not only are these folks, you know, more experienced, you know, slightly older and more mature in terms of, of their development of, of their careers, et cetera, uh, you know, there's, 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 they're balancing out the technical skills that I don't have right now, um, but they're also balancing out my, my personality. And so I think there's a really, really uh, careful balance that you need to have when you're building a team, especially from scratch. And you are not going to do that by only hiring your friends or only hiring folks with a similar background to you. Um, and I've made all of those mistakes before. And I have hired folks and, and, you know, wanted to bring on folks that had very similar backgrounds. And, and the problem is, is that, you, you know, you, you can't have people do the same job. You have to, especially in such a lean startup with such a, such a competitive kind of landscape where you need to be really hitting inflection points and growing very quickly. There's no room for, for overlapping skill sets. Um, so I think that, that, the other piece of that is, and this was a question that um, I believe Arvind, Arvind, um, Arvind Gupta, who is the founder, one of the founders of, of SOSV, or sorry, not SOSV, of IndieBio. Let me look and check the name on that. Yeah, Arvind Gupta. Uh, he is one of the founders of, of IndieBio. And he asked me a really good question one time, uh, which I think is relevant here, which was, you know, Zimri, are you going to outsource all of your talent and, and bring on folks and really um, delegate? Or are you going to learn everything yourself and do everything yourself? It's a loaded question. Uh, and I think really talented founders and managers, like especially when you're hiring, like Arvind, that's an excellent question from Arvind. It's a loaded question. And that's done purposefully because you want to see how I'll, I'll respond. I think I had a good response. And I'll repeat that one. So that was that, you know, while it is important to find folks with diverse tech backgrounds to work with, you know, mixing design or fashion designers, and even today we, we're bringing on, you know, someone from FIT, we have PhDs in, in material science and in, in chemistry and process engineering, chemical engineering, people who are journalists who have written for Vogue and you have a textile designer, Reebok, and writers and graphic designers, and only when you have all of these components do you actually have a comprehensive company. But to address Arvind's question, um, you know, I think that you have to do a little bit of both. You have to find people who are are 
have a diverse skill set, but you also have to increase your core competency of knowledge to be able to interface with them. So if at the beginning of the company, I didn't think that it was really important to start studying biotechnology, and I did heavily, and I became an okay uh, microbiology lab tech, and I'm today an okay chemistry lab tech, if I didn't research these things and read textbooks and, 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 and I was the CSO of the company for, for a good, you know, two years, um, if I didn't do that kind of lifting work and, and, and improving my skill set and, and, and learning to interface with people and to, to do these kinds of tasks, I think it's really important for a leader to, to, to never delegate something that they wouldn't do themselves if they could. Um, and so, and that's something I learned from my dad. It's a very good lesson. He says, I would never tell or hire anyone to do something I, I wouldn't be willing to do myself. And I think that when you're when you're able to be, um, you know, doing the things that a CEO has to do, but at the same time, you sometimes you are on the lab bench and you are doing chemistry. Sometimes you are doing formulation science and you are you know, doing innovative chemistry or, you know, research and R&D. And you are doing design process. If you're part of these things and you have these skills and you've taught yourself these skills, I think your team is going to respect you more. I think that. Uh, you're going to have better communication that you're actually going to know what's going on. And so it really takes a little bit of both. You have to delegate. You have to find people with technical skills you don't have, but you also have to, uh, you know, have a core competency in, in all of the things that all of your people do. And so that really requires a jack of all trades and someone who's very adaptable and very learns very quickly on site, on the job, <clears throat> you know, through their experience. And that's something that I think I've always been, been, been good at. I think that really answers also a question I had about like being, uh, let's say, a leader among uh, people who are very specialized in what they do. So it really yeah. makes sense that, you know, you, you, I guess, put in that effort to, you know, learn a little bit of what each of them is doing and, as you say, become a jack of all trades. That's, I think, <laughs> great advice for people who want to. And, and, and if, you're a, if you're a CEO that's a startup CEO that's coming up and, and you're growing a team, the easiest way to think about about who you need to hire next is, is, you know, map out what you do in a day, map out what you do in a week, map out all the tasks that you, you're doing and actively doing. And you, as a CEO, as a startup, that's what I'm, you know, at the beginning, it's just you. And so you're doing everything. Um, so map all that out and find people who can take those tasks away from you and and, out and do them instead of you and do them with a better technical background, better than you could. So, you know, when I was doing all the formulation science and doing a lot of the chemistry on the bench, you know, okay, obviously I needed to get a senior material scientist who can take that section over from what I used to be doing. And I think that's a very good way to know when, when to hire, when something becomes suddenly out of your ability or something becomes sort of too time consuming for your schedule and you need to, to deliver it off from someone else. If you have the funds, um, or you have the charisma to convince someone to come on even earlier than when you have the funds, um, then that's a good time to do it. Great. You were also previously talking about like the story of how you went from, well, a prototype in your in a college dorm room to, well, being at IndieBio and now trying to scale. I, you know, myself, I'm interested in all these uh, like biotech scaling thing. It's just what everybody talks about, like, oh, the technology needs to scale in order to go to market and so on. How does that look yeah. like for a materials company like Bucha Bio? So the key thing for us, you know, was and for me is to to learn from the mistakes or or, or interpret what I think the 
the correct path to, to market is. And there's quite a bit of data uh, on, and when I say data, I don't mean actual data. I mean, just qualitative observational things that I've noticed from some of our competitors or some people in, in the space and learn what I want to do and what I don't want to do from their experiences. And so one of the things that I learned from some of the mycelium-based um, technologies is that I didn't want to build our own industrial process to create this. So what they're doing is they're very, they're having to design and construct the kind of equipment necessary to produce mycelial um, textiles at scale. So one of the things that I really didn't want to do was to create our own machinery. And I didn't want to produce things in-house. Both of those things are very expensive and very time-consuming. I think for us, the key is to get products to market faster. And the way you do that is that you can in, you interface and slot in your technology or for, reformat your technology. We've pivoted a whole lot. So we've, de- we've absolutely reformatted our technology. You have to be flexible. Um, to adjust it to existing industrial machinery. And so we are very much banking on utilizing, or not banking, but we're very, we think the correct path is to utilize existing plastics manufacturing and utilize existing plastics manufacturers to produce our materials at scale. What we don't want to happen is we do not want to be Become a commodity product. And so the differentiating factor here is that we have a brand that we're building. That brand has value. We have cutting edge technology with cutting edge effects that no one's seen before. You know, creative design potential that's you just haven't seen. So something that glows in the dark via recombinant proteins, or something that sticks to a wall you can climb up a wall with because it has the protein from a gecko's hmm. uh, skin on it. You know, we're unlocking some of these potentials that just haven't been seen before. And, and some of those things I'm a lot more excited about talking about than just uh, a leather analog or a leather replacement. But for the environment, that is just as important um, or even probably more important than these you know, technology effects. But, but I think all of us at Butcher Bio are equally environmentally focused as well as being technologists and wanting to create you know, cutting edge tech. And so for those reasons, we think that we are avoiding commodity pricing. Um, and even though we're hooking into the plastics manufacturing network, um, that doesn't mean that our products are cheap. Yeah, that's what I actually was reading and uh, that you are actually focusing on luxury products in some way. And I was wondering, like, um, between how do you balance between you want to have a great impact and that's why you're like outsourcing the production but also taking the product to i guess more to apply it in more products that's a good question um can i repeat the question back to you to make sure i understand it yeah so you're you're saying that you're developing sort of a slurry um at the same time you, you want to optimize its effects for different products. How do you balance those two things? Yeah, I guess that the first one would be how do you balance like producing a lot, like using these outsourcing things, uh, and then having the the material in different products. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I get you. I understand now. Um, okay, so 
the key is to use a system that can very easily produce many kinds of products in a single system. So you're right, if you were producing, I mean, and that's not always the case, um, but in terms of plastics manufacturing, most things are done via extrusion. Okay. Now extrusion, uh, at the end of an extrusion line, so you put in your pellets, you put in your liquids, you put in your whatever you want to put on the input, it then gets processed inside the extruder, mixed together, sometimes a chemical reaction happens in there. Um, it doesn't have to, but sometimes it does. Uh, and then it gets pushed out a die. Now that die can be any shape. You can put it in, in, as, a, as a kind of a slat and you can have a sheet come out of that. That's how you'd get something that looks like leather, non-woven textile. Or you can have a shower die coming out of a shower die, just like the shower head on your shower that you probably used this morning. Um, is going to be fibrous. It's going to be these small, you know, thin filaments. Um, so you're going to have fibers coming out of that. Uh, and then if for hard composites and things, you know, you're, you're going to have things that are, you know, injection molding, etc. But but a lot of that can be done using similar technology or a similar formulation. And so the key for us has been how do you find uh, existing technology to scale, but also technology that is fairly versatile in terms of producing different kinds of material that have a similar piece of equipment. Okay. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And it also like ties into this idea of growing the, um, I, I think it was called the, the biopolymer catalog or the family of biopolymers, right, that you're building? Yeah. Sure. You can see those words. We use. I think we've been calling it the, the biopolymer library. Our, library. Our, That's right. In our, in our laboratory, we've designed. It's. Um, we have. A, it's called a reagent library. Uh, we have different things, different effects. We have you know tons of chemicals that we have under the label. Oh, these are all plasticizers, or these are all. That doesn't mean plastic. It just means it will make it more flexible. Um, these things are all hydrophobicity things. All from hydrophobicity characteristics. Oh, these things are all emulsifiers, or you know, etc. So. You mentioned that at first, like even before starting Ducha, you were looking at intellectual property, what other people were doing in the space, and so on. I wonder, how do you think about other companies doing similar things like uh, MicroWorks, I think it is, and also, um, yeah, well, other companies. How do I view our competitors? When you found out about them, did that ever stop you from thinking, oh, we're like, we cannot do this? No, no, quite the opposite. Um, the, at the genesis of the company, you know, when I was with the business librarian, Adam Schrombaugh at Temple, um, we looked at the microworks um, specifically. And um, we, we realized, and I think that, you know, I also saw a pattern that was happening and it's now coming to fruition. So I, I was right about this. Um, cool. Sometimes you get it right, sometimes you get it wrong, which is that alternative proteins really were in their first inning when we started the company, or maybe their second inning when we started the company. And, and I'm using like a baseball metaphor there. So uh, the uh, and so they, they were already established, right? That these companies were been around, they were just getting funded, and then there was kind of a boom in alternative proteins. Whoa, you have the big the big players that have won. You've got Impossible Foods, um, you know, and, and, and you've got Oakley, and we've got these big products that are on the market, people are enjoying, um, that have hit the mass market. <laughs> 
and then you have an explosion of startups doing other alternative proteins. That still kind of exists exists until today, and now it's more of an. It's in, in, if I used to go back to the baseball metaphor, it's you know, inning inning five or six. Um, and so we saw that the folks like Bolt Threads, uh, my coworkers, that was inning one, and. At the time, I saw an opportunity to be one of the first companies in this space, and we are. Um, you know, but I also think that that path, I have to give respect and homage and credit to folks like Bolt Threads, to folks like Microworks that tried to build companies for you know sometimes 10 plus years without gaining real traction until the markets kind of shifted, investment kind of shifted over it, and we didn't. Do all that because they had some of them had pioneered that before us, and also values had changed. So the timing was quite good for us to grow much faster, very much more quickly. Um, and and now we see this is now inning two, and and I I do believe that we're you know we were just on the the edge of of inning one. We were part of inning one, but but we were one of the first companies in this space, um, and so I, I do think we are pioneering the technology. But behind us, we do see a, a, you know, what's soon to be very surely an explosion of, of alternative materials companies that are, are coming up behind. And so the question for us is kind of twofold. One is, is how do we stay ahead of folks who are going to be raising money even faster behind us um, and in front of us? How do we differentiate ourselves from what's going on? I talked to someone who used to work very high, you know, high-level journalist at TechCrunch the other day, and he he told me he said, you know, oh, you know, you're the fourth or the fifth company in in the space. You're just doing another alternative. It's becoming saturated, and and, and I I don't think it's saturated. Like if 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 if, if investors can fund the the one billionth and first, you know, pea protein company, then I'm not sure I agree with that statement. Um, but to be fair, yes, there are multiple options and multiple companies playing in the space. With a lot of the fashion brands we talked to, we are the first alternative materials company that they've spoken with. And so we still are getting kind of a first mover advantage to some extent. But in my head, you know, it is a feeling to me that I don't want to build something that isn't very novel. You know, I don't want to just be another alternative proteins company. That my vision's always been larger than that. And so, the question has been: How do we differentiate? How do we stick out? How do we be our own thing that that is not made? You know, a comparison to 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 microworks, to bulk threads, etc. And and I think we found the solution, um, which is. You know, we are at this intersection that no one else is at between this biotech, this material science to do kind of these insane effects and these creative design potential that no one else has done. I think everyone else is focusing on emulating materials that already exist, so leather. And for sure, we're doing that as well, because that's how you get started, that's how you get a market, that's how you get going. Um, but behind that, we want to create materials that people haven't seen before. That you know, and I can't talk too much about those because I'm under contract um, to <laughs> not. But the ethos is that we're going to differentiate by being the world's coolest biotech material solutions company. That when you see some of our projects that we're working on, you're like, "Whoa, I didn't." 
like that blows my mind. That looks totally insane. Um, I wouldn't expect a shoe or I wouldn't expect a jacket. Like, whoa, it, you know, it's glowing or it's like, I I jumped on the wall and I'm sticking to the wall. We were really chasing those really um, high impact, really cool effects. Or, whoa, this is transparent. you know, in quality, and I can use my lampshade, and I can actually see through it and see the algae dye suspended in the material uh, through it. And so, where I see a gradient happening from a natural dye to another natural dye in the material or through the, the, the thickness of the material. There's tons of crazy ideas that I could talk about, but we want to be enabling those really futuristic effects. Uh, for the companies we partner with. And so I think that that's going to be differentiating us on the market, that no one else will be doing what we're doing. And I'm hoping that's going to be pretty exciting. That sounds absolutely exciting. And I can't wait to potentially, you know, actually touch those amazing products and say that's Bucha Bio. So, Zimri, yeah. so far it's been awesome, like, learning and talking with you. Um, one of my last questions is, you're obviously a very young founder, and especially in the biotech space, so is there any piece of advice that you would give to other seriously young biotech founders? <laughs> yes, you and everyone else likes to point this out. Um, I think Forbes, <laughs> Forbes <laughs> called me, but they called me, they called me an old man at 22. Um, you know, hilarious, great joke. Um, yeah, the people talk about my age quite a bit. Um, yes, it's true. Um, I'm I'm younger on the younger side of, of, of founders generally, and, and certainly on the younger side of, of founders in biotech. Um, my advice for young founders, uh, you know, would be that. Well, I'll tell you what I did. Um, when people wouldn't take me seriously, I I put on a suit. I cut okay. my hair. I didn't wear a hat. I put on a suit and a tie, and I convinced them that this was the right play. So I think that, unfortunately, you're going to have to find an uphill battle in terms of of convincing people you're credible or you're mature enough or you have the experience or you have the the, um, kind of of guts and the, the fortitude to stick something like this out. It's not going to be easy. Uh, it will. It, it, it doesn't get easier. And you know, I think that young people, young founders, should remind themselves that you know you, you have more energy, you have more grit, you have a vision for the world. You are relentlessly optimistic, and all of those things give you the exact tools you need to push forward um, and learn new skills uh, until. No one will call you unexperienced or no one will call you, um, you know, unqualified. So you have in your toolbox all of the right attitude skills to, to push you to that next level. Um, you know, when it comes down to it, put on a suit, um, put on a, a business attire, right? And get serious and don't think twice and convince someone that you're, you're the right person to do this. And people, people see that, people respect that. And so, you know, in our investors and what we've done, it's not been an issue. And I don't think it should be for anyone else either. But at the same time, you know, maybe you should fire, maybe you should also hire like someone who's more experienced or you you can also offset some of those things too. And and I think hiring folks that are more experienced uh, or or older and is is a great way to offset that as too, as well. 
Sure, building the team. And I also want to like point out that I'm not trying to say this in like a, you know, with a negative connotation. I actually admire that a lot because I I actually want to become, you know, a young biotech founder myself. So that's great advice, I think. And finally, if you could tweet something that the whole world read, what would that be? Wow. I'm not on Twitter. I try to stay <laughs> off Twitter as much as possible. Um, but if I had to tweet something that the whole world would read, hmm. that's the first time I've been asked that one. Let's see. What do I want the world to know? You know, I I I, I do wish the world was 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 a little more inclusive, right? A little bit more like you know. Uh, we didn't have so many of these barriers, like you know, cultural barriers, or, or I wish there was more access to let less judgment to kind of exchange culture and exchange ideas and and to be part of of a new place. And so I would say that um, you know, go go forward, live with an open mind and open heart, and just allow people to enter your life, to to leave, to enter, exit your life. You know, be like water. Um, but be accepting of everyone and, and who they are and, and take everyone seriously. And that's not a good tweet. Gosh, that's a hard one. Hmm. I think on that's Twitter. good. Yeah, I think that's good. Like uh, having more diversity and open-mindedness. That's needed. Yeah, yeah. I think I think the world has come a long way, but I still think it is a long way to go. I, I'm very optimistic about the future. I would tell the world that, you know, have kindness for the people around you. Think about the future. Uh, think about... Um, how you're contributing. I think being part of being an adult is 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 understanding your place in in society and in in the world and how your actions impact those people around you immediately, the people who are around them, and then eventually the whole whole world. And that these things can have a cascading effect. And so I think that living the lifestyle that you want to see in everyone else and and think about the future, I think is. It's important people to get out of their own head, get out of their own experience, get out of, of their own life and think bigger um, than themselves. And I think if we all did that more, you'd have many more biotech startups and probably kinder people. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That was my tweet. That, that, that awesome. last bit was my tweet. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, thanks for that, Zimri. And I guess we, yeah, can just um, close close the interview conversation here. So thanks for, for coming to the podcast. Yeah. Well, I'm very happy to be on the podcast. Love what you're doing. Best of luck. Let me know if you need any help. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Obaya podcast. You can stay in touch with me on Twitter at Sophia, S-H underscore. Also, if you want to stay up to date with the latest Obaya episodes or just with biotech, digital content I create in general. I'll see you in the next one.